You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you today. And we are going to talk about a man who I think shaped the childhoods of uh, the majority of Americans. And really, when you you talk about a cultural icon, this person really is that, and he contributed so much and left us all too early. I'm talking about Jim Henson, the creator of Sesame Street and the Muppets and so much goodwill, good entertainment, good educational content, just uh, a great man. And we have a great guest to talk about it. I'm talking about Brian J. Jones. He is the author of Jim Henson, and uh, he has an interesting background because he actually spent nearly two decades as a public policy analyst and speechwriter, and then in 2007 decided to start writing uh, biographies, and he has been incredibly successful at it, a New York Times bestseller. He's done books on Washington Irving. Actually, his more recent book is on George Lucas and, again, uh, Jim Henson, the biography. Brian, welcome to the program today. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so glad to sit. Always love to talk about Jim. Well, I, I've got to believe, uh, you know, looking at your pictures, I, I'm figuring we're probably similar in age. Um, were you inspired to write about Jim Henson because he was a big part of your childhood? Yeah, I mean, you and I, I think, are in the the what I call the, the Henson wheelhouse uh, because <laughs> because he was always for, I was two when Sesame Street premiered, so he was he was he we didn't have to wait for Jim to come along. He was always there for us. Right. Uh, we were the first generation that he was there for. We were the first generation raised to you know, to learn how to read and do our numbers on Sesame Street. And I was nine when The Muppet Show debuted, and I saw the first Muppet movie in the theater and Dark Crystal in the theater and Labyrinth in the theater, which actually really uh, established my uh, Henson cred with the Henson family, I think. Um, somebody said, oh, you were one of the 12 who saw it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Jim, Jim was always part of my life and probably part of yours for as long as we can remember. Yep. So we were sort of that first generation raised by him and his work on TV and in the movies. Uh, so I, he has uh, an interesting story. Talk about uh, Henson's childhood. I mean, I think, you know, some people, uh, he was born in <laughs> Mississippi, which I think would maybe be a surprise to some people. Um, tell us a little bit about Jim Henson's growing up years. Yeah, Jim. Uh, Jim was the son of a Department of Agriculture uh, agronomist. His dad, Paul Henson, did a lot of work in soybeans, and so if that was what you were doing, you were going to work for the Department of Ed in either two places. You were going to be in Mississippi, or you were going to be in Maryland, uh, because that's where the two big facilities are. And as it turns out, Jim was sort of in both. Uh, he was born in Mississippi, for the most part, raised in Maryland, but you know, really, sort of, it, it, you could always you could take Jim out of the South, but there was still always a little bit of Southern gentility in Jim. Um, but Jim, the, the really interesting thing about Jim is uh, we all assume, oh, Jim must have been one of these guys that love puppets and play with puppets. Not true at all. Jim, to, by his own admission, never wanted to be a puppeteer, never really played with puppets, never really put on a puppet show, uh, but just did the kind of things that normal kids did. Uh, you know, he loved, at that time, he loved to ride around on his horse and he loved to play ball and he loved to just goof off. 
And one of his uh, a lot of his childhood friends I talked to said to a person <clears throat> that he had this really interesting ability to find solutions to problems that were hidden in plain sight, which will sort of inform the way he works throughout his life. But the example that uh, one of them gave me that they just loved was they were trying to uh, reenact uh, a movie they had seen where there were there were a, uh, t- a set of twins. One was good and one was bad, both played by the same actor. And you can only tell them apart because the bad guy had a birthmark on his hand. And Jim took a piece of cork and burnt the end of it and then put the, the ash on his friend's hand to make to give him the birthmark. And they all said that would never have occurred to them to do. So that, that was sort of Jim's ability to you know find solutions. There's a great picture in the book, in fact, of Jim wrapped up in uh, you know sheets he's taken out of his home and he's got a turban on and he's snake charming a garden hose. Uh, so that's that's the kind of kid Jim was, just a really imaginative kid. But what he really wanted to do more than anything else is Jim's the one of the, is the first generation as young people who were exposed to television. So Jim's sort of the first TV generation. And what Jim wanted to do more than anything in the whole world was be on television. He didn't care what he was doing, how he got there. He was fascinated by the technology. He loved the idea that what you saw on screen was going on someplace else. And by the time he's a teenager, he's living in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, in College Park, Maryland. And um, that was actually a great place to be if you were a fan of TV because you could get a whopping five channels outside Washington, (laughs) D.C. And I always compare it to sort of the early days of cable when we got that box that was actually still literally attached to the TV by a cable. Um, And and you would kind of, you know, remember how the buttons on the top and you would shotgun through every single one of those channels looking at anything and everything. And And that's kind of what Jim did. He watched everything that was on, you know, bad TV, good TV, variety shows, news shows, whatever it was. Jim was watching it. And that was really what uh, what Jim wanted to do more than anything else was be on television, work in TV. Now, um, an interesting thing here, and I had seen this years ago, but I didn't realize uh, one of his first uh, involvements was with the, the Jimmy Dean show. And if that name sounds familiar, most people know him as the late Sausage King now. But at that time, he was a popular singer and had his own uh, big TV show and so forth. Uh, but I, I guess that's kind of how he got this start. Is that right? Well, actually, Jim, Jim, Jimmy Dean knew about Jim Henson because they were they were both on television in the D.C. area at the same time. And Jim had, and Jimmy Dean had seen him. What happened with Jim was when he was in high school, he saw an ad in the local newspaper that said, oh, we're, we're a TV show that needs young people to perform puppets. So um, if you're come down here and audition. Well, for Jim, who wanted to be on TV and didn't care what it was, he decided, I'll go down and present myself as a puppeteer. I don't know anything about puppets. I've never built a puppet, but he checked some books out of the library, figured out how to build and perform puppets, auditions down at the WTOP, the CBS station there in D.C., and he gets hired on TV as a puppeteer. And that was really all he wanted. That was going to be his foot in the door. Um, But as it turned out, he was so good at it. That by the time he's a freshman in college at the University of Maryland, he's got his own regular TV series, five days a week, five minutes right after the evening news called Sam and Friends. And that's actually where Kermit makes his first appearance as still he's not a frog yet. He's a thing. But doing these, you know, these really quick pieces advertising local, you know, local bread, local sausage, local meat um, and just Muppets lip syncing to records and doing terrible things. We blowing each other up and devouring each other, the things that Jim loves to do. Um, not really performing voices yet. He's mostly lip syncing to, you know, Sam Freeberg records, Stan Freeberg records and things like that. Um, but that was where Jimmy Dean had seen Jim Henson. And that actually got Jim a lot of attention. They ended up on the tonight show in the late fifties. And so when Jimmy Dean got ready to do his own show, he said, you know, I want a puppet dog to talk to. And that's the guy I want doing it. The guy I 
saw there in DC. Huh. And that's, uh, that's, uh, Ralph, right? Right. And Jim had built Rolf for a Canadian dog food commercial, actually, and just, you know, used Rolf. And one of the great things about Rolf is Rolf, you remember, has two hands that you can operate. So Rolf could pick things up. And, you know, the most of Jim Puppets, Muppets at that point didn't do that. Uh, they, they didn't have operating hands. Rolf could do that. So he takes two people to operate. Um, and so he had used him for those dog food, picking up dog food bowls and eating and then just sort of discarded Rolf. But then when uh, Jimmy Dean wanted the dog to talk to, Jim brings Rolf out of storage and uh, and puts him on the Jimmy Dean show where he is an immediate sensation. Um, eventually ends up getting more fan mail than Jimmy Dean. As Jimmy Dean says one time, eventually they're going to be ta- they're going to think this is that dog show and not mine. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. So, I mean, how did uh, Sesame Street happen then? Because there's a there's a gap there, I think. What what happened in between those years? Well, so the the 60s are actually a really fascinating time for Jim uh, on television, in fact, Um, because Jim in the 60s, you know, doesn't quite know exactly what he wants to be yet. You know, he's he's got a young family at that time. He married his his college sweetheart. They're raising a family. Uh, And Jim's got his own company in New York called Muppets Incorporated. But if you look at the commercials they're running in the newspapers at the time, it's we're Muppets Incorporated and we do. Um, we do TV animation because he had done the opening credits for a new show. We do short films. He had done a, a 1965 seven-minute film called Timepiece that was actually nominated for an Academy Award. Has no puppets in it at all. Uh, we do TV specials. He had done two TV specials for NBC. One called The Cube, which is sort of an avant-garde, weird Twilight Zoney piece about a man in a cube-shaped room and interesting things keep happening to him. You don't quite know what's real. And he'd also done a documentary called Youth 68, sort of talking with young people and, you know, about and it. it had, he did it right before sort of everything went to hell at the, you know, over that summer. So it's, it's an interesting piece of looking at what Jim's doing with technology more than anything else. Um, and he was trying to develop an adult, by adult, I mean for grownups, um, nightclub that you could go to where you could dance and they would project movies on the ceiling and, you know, movies would sort of play in time with music. It was a very advanced idea that he couldn't quite execute because the technology wasn't there. So Jim's doing a lot of things at that time, a lot of which don't involve the Muppets, but he's still got the Muppets on TV doing Ed Sullivan and doing commercials. And, you know, Muppets are paying the bills for him. Um, so that's what's going on in the 60s. It's a really experimental time for Jim, and he's working almost nonstop. And, you know, we all sort of know at the end of that sentence is Sesame Street waiting for him. He doesn't know that. So he's still doing anything and everything he can, including a lot of really interesting things. But what finally happens is in 68 or so, the Children's Television Workshop is put together and they're trying to develop Sesame Street. And it's unlike, you know, most children's shows on TV at the time, which were Captain Kangaroo or something. If you were an educational show, you were usually a lecturer looking at the camera and reading off the chalkboard, which is very boring. Or if you were trying to entertain the kids, you were entertaining them, but you didn't really have the, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the pedagogy behind it that you needed to ensure you were teaching kids their letters and grand numbers. Sesame Street was trying to capture both of those. They, were, they wanted to have a mentality like laughing, very fast paced, very funny, looking like commercials almost. This is brought to you by the letter A, for example, um, but with a pedagogy behind it. So they had, you know, a lot of Harvard educators. Things. So they had this big group put together to put together Sesame Street. But one of the things they wanted was puppets to keep kids interested and do funny things and teach kids letters and numbers. And Jim's not involved in the group at that time. They're all sort of moving it along. And finally, um, they say, well, we need a puppeteer. And John Stone, who's a brilliant TV guy, says, oh, I know just the guy for you. 
And in fact, this is how important Jim Henson is to Sesame Street. John Stone says, if you can't get Jim Henson to do puppets on Sesame Street, then you can't have puppets on Sesame Street. He's the guy you need. Um, so they bring Jim in and he's got to sort of be persuaded actually to do this project. And I think one of the ways they get him is um, the first thing they tell him he can do is not develop Muppet characters, but he did all those little short films that we all love so much. You know, the um, the King of Eight stop motion yep. films, Jim Henson production and uh, even the cartoons, the uh, the uh, the ones with, um, oh gosh, um, uh, with the. Uh, uh, Bumble Artie and the pig party is, you know, that's a cartoon that Jim had worked on. Um, so all those little things, uh, the guys opening the doors, counting to three, uh, you know, and you have three alligators and three balls and then the baker falls down the stairs, which are the films I always loved. As yeah. A kid. And that's, actually, those are his all voice, that's actually his voice. If I, that, that is his voice. It's not him falling down the stairs, but it's his voice dub. But, but I think that's first of all, how they got Jim to Sesame Street. Cause he didn't, he was actually, you know, you have to remember at that time, Jim was doing so many different things. He didn't want to be sort of boxed in as a puppeteer. And even worse, he didn't want to be boxed in as the children's puppeteer. You know, everything right. he had done with Muppets on TV was aimed at everybody. It wasn't aimed at kids. So he was really not necessarily skeptical, but very, very, um, you know, sort of stiff arming Sesame Street a little bit saying, let me, you know, let me do some of these fun things, making these short films. And then finally gets involved and creates Ernie and Bert and Oscar and um, and Big Bird. Um, and the, the story behind Oscar and Big Bird I love is because what had happened was Jim had filmed a lot of the Muppet segments with Ernie and Bert. And those were all freestanding segments that they would cut away to on the show. And when they put the first pilots together and were showing them to children in, you know, in Pennsylvania and, and other states, um, they noticed that when the Muppets were on and doing their thing, the kids were very engaged. And then as soon as they cut back to the adults in the real world, so to speak, they all turned off. Yeah. So they, so they knew, yeah. So they knew they had a problem. Um, and, you know, as Jim put it, the eggheads, as you always called them, they were very concerned that kids wouldn't be able to discern the reality versus, you know, versus the Muppets. Um, but they realized they just had to get Muppets on the street to uh, to hold their focus. So Big Bird was actually brought onto the show to be the child's perspective on the show. And Oscar was put there on the street. So there were Muppets living on the street so they could still hold on to the Muppets even when they weren't doing the Muppet segments. And Carol Spinney has performed both of those characters since day one and That's still does amazing. to this day. You know, the, I, I, I think I misstated something in the intro, but actually I think in a way it's the truth. And I want to get your take on this. I said he created Sesame Street. Well, he really didn't. It was the cello. Uh, now I remember. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, the Children's Television Network. But in a way he did create Sesame Street as we know it. And without Jim Henson, Maybe Sesame Street would have ended up being an afterthought. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, what you know, I mean, what made Sesame Street an immediate? I mean, it was shot out of a cannon from day one. And what made it such a hit was parents could sit down and watch it with their kids. It spoke to both audiences, and the Muppets were a big part of that because Jim was the kind of performer, and he always and he said from very early on, you never talk down to the kids. You talk to them, but you never talk down to them. And that's the same thing that we respond to Jim's work as as adults, um, you know, because Jim says, well, adults inside, they're all kids as well, too. So, you know, Jim spoke right right to the audience and never talked down to them. So adults could feel comfortable sitting there watching Sesame Street. There was nothing embarrassing about watching Sesame Street as a grown up. So I think that's the reason it, it caught lightning in a bottle is because you did have Jim there with the Muppets. You know, you've got Ernie and Bert pulling each other's noses off and things like that. Um, and kids think this is great, but you're, you know, you're still learning things and parents are laughing at this. There was, there was no, there was no shame in sitting down in front of Sesame Street. Like maybe some parents had felt sitting down to watch, you know, Captain Kangaroo or something as grownups. 
Uh, there was no need to apologize for Sesame Street. Did he feel constricted by Sesame Street? In other words, you were talking about he didn't want to be boxed in. Was there ever a point early on in the first few years before he branched out to the television show and the features and everything? Did he ever feel a little boxed in? Is like, oh, God, I'm going to get kind of uh, earmarked as like the kid's puppeteer. Yeah, no, he, he really did. And so that's why very early on, you know, he says at one point that he had sort of two careers going in the late 60s. One was doing this, you know, these independent films and these sort of arty films and things. And the other was being the, the puppeteer. And when Sesame Street got so popular, he knew he had to devote more time to being a puppeteer. So kind of what he, what he starts doing is, is Jim knows that the Muppets are bigger than just Sesame Street, that they can hold their own. Um, and that they're bigger than just doing five minutes on the Ed Sullivan show. So Jim actually has been writing the idea for a 30-minute Muppet show since the mid-60s when he believes that they can hold their own. Uh, in the archives, there's proposals that Jim's writing for network executives dating back to mid-1965. Or, I mean, I mean the mid-60s, 1965 and so. Um, and remember, the Muppet show doesn't debut until 1976. So this is an idea Jim's been writing a long time. Um, he's also trying to get the Muppets onto a live stage show, similar to what they're, what they're doing now with the Lion King. Um, but people are saying, well, nobody wants to be able to see the puppeteers on stage. That's, that's a concept people can't grasp. And of course, Jim was right about that, but at the wrong time, because the Lion King proved that wrong. Um, so he's, you know, he's trying to develop this, but the other thing that falls into his lap, well, so it is, um, he's asked to be in season one of Saturday Night Live. His agent, Bernie Brillstein, also represents Lauren Michaels and practically everybody on SNL. And they, Lauren Michaels puts Jim Henson on Saturday Night Live in the first season. He's one of the must-haves along with Albert Brooks, uh, the short films of Albert oh, yeah. Brooks. Uh, so they really want Jim. So the Muppets are actually showing up on on Saturday Night Live. And in the deep end of, you know, the viewing time, Jim can sort of do these weird things. He's not writing those sketches, but he builds very interesting, weird looking puppets that have glass taxidermy eyes and don't really look like anything else he's done. So Jim's doing a lot of things, still trying to sort of break away from just being Sesame Street. Um, the one thing Sesame Street is doing is Jim was very smart and hung on to a lot of the merchandising rights for Sesame Street. And so um, the merchandising from Sesame Street is also keeping the lights on at Henson Associates through most of the early 70s. But he's really, more than anything, trying to get that TV, that half-hour TV show. And he's producing a number of TV pilots for what he's hoping will turn into a weekly Muppet show. And it's a real study in stick to on Jim's part because his first two pilots, the first one's called – uh, the Muppet Valentine show uh, does okay, but doesn't lead to a pilot. The second one called Muppet Sex and Violence, which Jim loved, um, also doesn't get picked up. So Jim's, you know, he's already got two strikes. He's, he's almost striking out on this and he still is trying to get this made. It's a, you know, it, it's really, really, a, a, again, a study in perseverance on Jim's part. You know, it seems like to me that uh, in addition to being a creative genius, he's probably a pretty good businessman now. Yeah. I, I mean, again, the fact that he's got one strike, two strikes. In fact, he even strikes out again because he makes a um, a short promotional film for a 30 minute Muppet show with an executive at CBS um, named George Slaughter. And they make this hilarious. Oh, yeah, that's pitch laughing reel. guy, the laughing guy. Yeah, right? it's done like, yeah. And they make this hilarious pitch reel that has the executives at CBS in stitches and they still don't pick it up. So, I mean, yeah, he actually, that's his third strike at that point. He finally gets picked up by Lou Grade over in over in London, who yeah, gets ITC, it. So, ITC, right? Yeah, and and a, a guy who's sort of cut from the same cloth as Jim likes the sort of old timey vaudeville feel that Jim's got with the Muppet Show. But yeah, Jim's you know Jim's a great businessman because one of the things Jim 
realized very early on is, you know, and, and I think this is probably the most important lesson you can learn as a businessman uh, from Jim, is Jim knew his work had value. Even from a very early day, um, Bernie Brillstein, his agent, was saying, oh, look, you've got Rolf the dog and um, you know the, the dog food company wants to own Rolf outright and they're going to give you a ridiculous amount of money to own Rolf. So you, this is a great deal, Jim. You should take this. And Jim says to Brillstein, Bernie, never sell anything I own. Uh, and, and it was the right instinct. And Jim, you know, owned all his own characters and owned his own television production and owned his own shows. And it's, you know, it's the reason the company was built and existed and, and continued to thrive uh, all of Jim's life because he owned his own work. He knew it had value. And that's, you know, that's the strongest statement you can make as a businessman is know your worth. And Jim knew his his value. Yeah, I think that's to be admired, too. I love people, um, tales of people who are creative and very good at the creative side, but always get the other side. I used to not do that. It's funny. I used to always think, oh, those are just people that want to run everything. And then the more I got involved, I'm like, no, those people want to have control over their own destiny. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that is that is that is kind of, you know, Jim's mentality. Uh, the thing I mean, now being a great businessman didn't always mean he was the greatest boss. Um, you know, Jim was conflict averse and didn't like to resolve disputes, um, you know, preferred. <laughs> there, there's a great story uh, that uh, Jane Henson told me where his lawyers were all squabbling over something. And Jim came into the room and all the lawyers looked to Jim to you know, resolve this issue. And Jim literally puts up his hands and says, I have to go to London. And like, you know, it's almost like the Simpsons kind of like backs out of the room and he gets on a plane and goes to London and he didn't have to be in London, but it was, it was fight or flight. And Jim literally chooses flight in that situation. Just, he didn't like the conflict. You know, he didn't, he, he treated his employees like family, which made everybody feel special and loved. But as his producer, David Laser kept telling him, Jim, you can't fire family. You know, if you have, if you have employee problems, you, you know, you, you feel terrible. You can't do this. Jim couldn't do good cop, bad cop with even himself as the good cop in any situation. So, you know, he, he, he leg legitimately loved the people he worked with, saw them as family, but made it very hard for him to be a supervisor sometimes. One of the things that, you know, his, his employees often were, you know, grumbling that Jim wasn't uh, telling them they were doing a great job. Uh, you know, David Laser says, Jim, you're not giving out the attaboys. And for Jim, this was incredibly frustrating because he said, you know, I hired them. That means I obviously think they're great. I don't know why I need to hand out the attaboys. So, um, you know, where because of the power of Jim's personality, he's eventually got offices in London and New York City. Wherever Jim is tends to feel very special and loved and involved. And wherever Jim isn't tends to feel very neglected and bitter and angry. And the people, you know, who are where Jim is sort of lorded over the people where Jim isn't. So, you know, it's the power of that personality as well. Makes it very hard for him. And Jim really struggled most of his life with, you know, really trying to, you know, to get a get a get a mentality in his company that this, yeah, this is a great place to work, but this is a company. It was very tough for him. Um, one thing I love about the Muppets, if you watch the the early stuff and the stuff that he was very involved in, the Muppet movie, the Muppet show, uh, is that there's a lot of call. And you spoke to this when you were talking about Lou Grade, the uh, British uh, British producer. But there's a lot of callbacks to the history of show business, a lot of homages. And the funny thing is, is when I was a kid watching it, I didn't get any of it. And then right. as an adult, now that I watch him, like, oh, I see what he was doing there. I mean, uh, that he liked to get those little references and things in, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, and again, that's that's the brilliance of Jim, which is why the Muppets, you know, have such a broad audience because he can be funny for the kids and for you and me, he's you know throwing in these weird in jokes. Uh, you know, even even the, he was even winking at the British crowd. He introduces that reporter and calls him Fleet Scribbler uh, after, <laughs> after Fleet Street. You know, yeah. where, the, where the press are in London. So you know, Jim Jim is always throwing in these in jokes. Yeah, I, I just think of uh, Sam. You know, <laughs> the, the 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 eagle, the patriotic eagle. I keep forgetting his character name. It's just Sam, but uh, Sam the eagle. Uh, that that's a great character when you think about politicians and maybe a little bit of. Uh, jab at uh, Mr. Nixon. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, it's it's Frank Oz brilliantly making fun of that sort of you know conservative mentality. You know, he's got that great line even in the Muppet 3D movie, which was done in you know 1989, where but where Sam the Eagle says uh, it will be a tribute to all the nations of the world, but mostly America. <laughs> I like that. Now, um, so uh, unfortunately, uh, Henson past at such a young age and i was just uh reviewing some stuff before we talked here and uh, you know at the time i was about 20 years old so uh, he seemed older to me but he was only 53 when he passed away i mean it almost seems like to me something that didn't necessarily have to happen it seemed just like a fluke thing what happened back in, in 1990 where we lost this genius so soon yeah so first of all, there's uh, one of the things that I was uh, really wanted to do with the biography is sort of sort of myth bust some of the rumors that had you know swirled around Jim's death. You know, there was one ugly rumor that he had died of AIDS, which of course is not true. Um, another one was that you know Jim what what Jim did die of was a massive strep infection. Uh, technically, he had pneumonia, but he had pneumonia because his lungs had decayed because he had this strep bacteria that were eating away at his organs, um, and you know. The, the again, the common mythology was, well, Jim didn't go to a doctor because Jim was a Christian scientist and Christian scientists don't go to doctors. Well, Jim was raised Christian science. That is true. And one of his grandparents was very hardcore Christian scientist. But Jim hadn't been a practicing Christian scientist since the 70s. There's even a letter in the Henson archives that basically say, see you later. Um, and, you know, producing films and things, you know, to be insured, Jim would have had to have gone to doctors for physicals because they won't insure you on a film unless you had a physical. So, you know, Jim was not doctor averse. Um, but the example I use here, you know, is Jim. Jim was a guy. Uh, and as guys, we don't go to the doctor. Um, you know, when I was when I was writing this book, I was in London in the summer of 2009, I think it was, when swine flu was all over London. And I actually ca- came down with swine flu. And I was on my back for almost a week and literally felt like I was going to die. But I didn't do anything because I thought, well, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'll I'm a healthy guy and I'll, <laughs> I'll power through and I'll be fine. And I really think that that's what happened to Jim. Is he really – I mean he thought he had maybe a bad flu, but he would get through it. Um, you know, doesn't think anything is – I mean who really thinks even when you're really sick that you are deathly ill? And so I think that's really what was going on with Jim, partly too, and this is the the heartbreaking part of it, is is once he decides to go to the doctor, uh, his mentality is, well, I don't really want to bother them. But, you know, that's what doctors do. Uh, And he finally agrees to go to the hospital, and he takes a cab in the middle of the night to the hospital, and the cab driver doesn't know the layout of the of the hospital and drops him off at the wrong door. And Jim has to walk up around the block to get into the emergency room and just gets out of the car and walks himself. So he doesn't bother the, the, the car driver, which then, you know, is something very typical of Jim. So, you know, I think that's what had happened. He has that terrible strep infection that's just ravaging his system, but the symptoms are very flu like. 
So he's not quite aware of what's going on. Now, if you go onto YouTube and you Google Jim Henson Arsenio Hall, you'll find his appearance on Arsenio's show in early May. Now, Jim dies on May 16th. Um, in early May, he's on Arsenio Hall, and he's he's bothered by a sore throat. And I really think that's where he came down with it. He had probably minor strep or, you know, and you can see he's slightly off and he's got Kevin Clash with him who finally sort of takes the pressure off of Jim and brings out some of his characters and is performing. And Jim was very happy with the way that, that appearance went. Thanks largely to Kevin Clash, but you can see him there sort of struggling already to, to speak. You know, he's, he's, his voice is a little thick at that. So I think you're, I think you're seeing it start even right there. Um, but you know, doesn't realize that he's that he's fatally ill. And by the time he does check into the hospital, he's just too far gone. Wow. Uh, they can't really do anything for him. You know, even antibiotics aren't going to do anything. He goes into a coma almost immediately on arriving at the hospital and never wakes from it. Uh, it dies less than a day later. Now, uh, again, the the Muppets have definitely continued, and there's multiple projects. There's been TV series. There's been movies. Uh, so, I mean, I think it would be wrong to say that the Muppets haven't been successful in Jim Henson's uh, absence, and I think they'll they'll outlast both of us. Yeah. But but did they lose something when they lost Jim Henson? Because it doesn't. Maybe it's just perception. It doesn't seem quite the same to me. Well, uh, uh, of course they did, and you know, the, one of the things to remember too, though, is at the time Jim, you know, the year Jim died, he was actually in the process of trying to sell his company to Disney. It, it when it finally ended up with Disney, that's where Jim wanted it to be. And as part of that deal, there were a lot of people who thought that Jim was going to basically unload the entire company, stay with Disney for a couple of years in an exclusive, and then walk away from the Muppets entirely, pass them on to another the next generation of people. So I think, you know, I think even Jim in his lifetime was sort of willing to say, look, other people can do them. You know, you train people correctly to know how to perform, and the Muppets are a very different style of performing. Uh, and and was willing to do that in his lifetime. I think without Jim in the picture, forget even not having him. I think part of what you've lost is you don't have somebody who's willing to 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 flog that for the company. Um, you know, Disney. <laughs> one of the things Frank Oz said is that Disney treats the Muppets like a toy box full of puppets. They don't necessarily value that puppetry is really hard and that the fact that you own Kermit doesn't mean you own Kermit's performer. doesn't mean that you don't have to train people to perform Kermit, to learn the art of puppetry, to learn that it's not just acting. It's not just puppetry. You know, there's a lot going on. So I think had you had Jim, you would have had somebody because Jim wanted to be involved in that. That was one of the discussions they were having with Disney was I want to be involved in the training and hiring of the performers. So I think losing Jim is, is losing not just that piece of having Jim as the performer, but you don't really have necessarily – you don't necessarily because I don't know this for a fact. But you don't necessarily have somebody who's really writing the art of puppetry inside the Disney organization. They're treating the Muppets as a commodity, as they rightly should. But there's more to it than that. You don't just own the puppets. You don't just own the characters. You've got to take care of the art, of the craft of performing. And I think that's one of the things Disney perhaps is struggling with a little bit. Um, and I think that, you know, they're I think they're struggling a little bit of trying to determine how you write for the Muppets and what that family dynamic is. Um, you know, you started to see it in the Muppets TV show on ABC. Yes. They really struggled in the first part of the season. And I think I think in the later part of the season, may, I think maybe they saw the writing on the wall and Disney sort of threw up their hands and said, you know, you guys do what you want because we're going to we're going to drop you anyway. 
but that's at the moment I think that that show really starts to write itself. I mean, it, meaning, you know, correct itself is they're starting to figure out the relationships between the characters and what makes the Muppets tick. And it's, it's that sense of family with the Muppets that is really what the Muppets is about. It's not about the plot you put them in. Uh, it's about them as characters. It's about the way they respond to each other. It's about the way they revolve around Kermit and how Kermit's holding, you know, these balloons that are trying to fly away from him by these lines. Um, so I, I think that they were starting to get it and it was too little too late at that point. But so, so I think that's, this is a really long way of saying, I think they're in good hands with Disney, but Disney's got to figure out what to do with them apart from just putting them in the parks as a restaurant. Um, as part of just having it's them as merchandising and licensing Yeah, they've got to figure out a little bit more what to do with it. I, I think they can get there. Um, but you know, I, I, they need, they need to really work it. This is a very different property than owning Marvel or owning Lucasfilm because there's more involved than just the characters. I mean, than, than just the, the property, you know, you've really got to have the right sort of, you know, with star Wars, like they bring the right people and you've got Kathleen Kennedy who's still there sort of helming Lucasfilm. They need to do that in the with, with the Muppets, figure out how, you know, how do you value the art of puppetry? How do you train the puppeteers? How do you teach them, you know, that they're not interchangeable. That was the big thing. I think Disney thought when they came in, you could put Kermit on anybody's arm, as long as they were a puppeteer and they could perform Kermit. And that's not really the way it works. I mean, Frank Oz always talked about, he would sit down and write these long, long essays on his characters, you know, pages and pages on Miss Piggy's family and her background and Sam the Eagle's background and, and, and even um, Marvin Suggs and the Muppophones. He had this whole background about Marvin Suggs and keeping his poor Muppophones in these rusty cages. And, you know, and Sam the Eagle's wife wasn't very nice to him. He's got all these backgrounds for characters that you never see. But what that meant was at any given time, Oz knew exactly how that character would respond because he knew that character so well. And that's what you need still with the Muppets is people that that live those characters. You don't just slide the Muppet on. You live that Muppet. And I think that's really what they've got to get back to. Are Jim Henson's children involved at this point? No, um, they you know, the, when the company was sold, they were it was sold outright. The Henson family held on to Fraggle Rock, uh, the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and uh, Bear in the Big Blue House. So they're always working new projects. They're doing something right now with Julie Andrews that sounds really fun over on Netflix. But as far as what we think of as the classic Muppets, they're not involved in that. Uh, Sesame Street, the Sesame Street Muppets are now owned outright by Sesame Workshop, so they're not involved in that either. Um, the Henson Company, um, the works, if you go to the workshop in Long Island, New York, you'll see familiar Muppets on the tables. But generally what they're doing is they're repairing them, making costumes for them you know, building them under contract from Disney or CTW. They're not, they're not the oversight of those characters anymore. So the legacy, which is large, what is Jim Henson's legacy? You know, Jim's legacy is, is simply in, in the way that, you know, Jim recognized that most of life was pretty funny. And that, uh, you know, Jerry, Jerry Joel once said that um, if the, I don't know, if they were keeping score on the Muppet Show, it would be Chaos 100, Frog 101. And that's sort of Jim's <laughs> outlook on life is, you know, life, life is pretty funny and, you know, live it to the fullest and, and try to enjoy what you do to the best you can. Um, but also, you know, you, you, you talk to people. You don't talk at people. You don't talk down to people. You value your work. You value your friends. You value the people you work with. Um, you know, Jim, Jim really is 
sort of uh, sort of the hippie that he looks like. You know, he's, he was very ecologically minded and very uh, democratic with a small d in the way we treat each other and, you know, and work out in the world. So Jim's legacy on TV is, you know, that's the mentality, that's the ethic that that informs his work, that informs his characters. You know, you see something like the Muppets and they're doing terrible things to each other. And you know that it's all going to be okay at the end of the day. They're all going to come back to each other. It's all one big family. Uh, and so I think that's why we still love Jim and why we still love his characters, because Jim really did feel familiar to us. Uh, and, you know, and because that's the way he, he worked hard to be that way. And he was that way. Um, and, you know, in, in his work, for example, he's constantly telling people, you know, you've got you've got time. I'm going to give you the time you need to develop your character, which is a commodity we just don't give people these days. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think his legacy is still up there on the screen. It's still, we still see it in the Muppets. We still see it in the way that, um, we put together, we, we world build, you know, you, you see something like, you know, George Lucas, when he gets into the stars, when he loves that world building and Jim does it in the dark crystal. He loves the world building and thinking about the way everything functions and relates to each other in the film that may never show up on screen. It's a very informed kind of film writing and filmmaking. So, um, Jim's influence is in that. It's in the way we look at technology. Jim was a real uh, gadget nerd and loved technology, loved digital. I think he would love what we do with CGI these days. He would love digital filmmaking, love being able to control every aspect of the film. Um, you know, that was one of the things that was very important to Jim is to take the new technology, take the technology and do something with it. Um, you know, do something fun with it. Um, you know, I, I, I think people often say, what would Jim be doing with the technology today? I can't answer that because I don't think anybody could answer that because Jim would have thought of something that we haven't thought of. And that's what made him Jim Henson. Um, you know, he was sort of trying to do interactive movies at one point in his career. The technology wasn't there. The closest thing we have to it now is probably video games and the way we do video right. games. And it's actually a story you're dropped into and you can affect that story by the actions you take. I mean, that's sort of the closest you can get to it. He was trying to set it up where you had multiple projectors in a movie and the audience would vote on what the next plot line was. And it was just a mess, technologically speaking. <laughs> but I think but I think you've seen you're seeing that sort of you know, mentality showing up in the way video games are put together. So, you know, play, playing with everything, I think, is is very much uh, very much in tune with the way Jim would have dealt, you know, w- would have lived his life had, had he had he made it past 1990 and would just be having a ball with a lot of this technology. Yeah, it's very sad. I mean, 53 years old, so much, so much life yet to be lived, so many innovations and in entertainment for all of us that we missed out on. Very sad, but thankfully we have... His work, we have the Muppets, and we have this book, Jim Henson, The Biography. Brian, I'm assuming uh, people can get this online, Amazon, uh, order it from their local bookstore. I know it's uh, uh, a couple years back, but the paperback came out last year, so it should be readily available, correct? Yes, it is. It is at a bookstore near you, available from your favorite bookseller, both brick and mortar and online, absolutely. And then uh, I would be... uh, neglecting my job if i didn't mention briefly your new book is uh, george lucas a life and it's doing quite well yeah that's that's been a really fun one too i mean it was you know it was really fun after writing about jim who sort of changed the way we look at you know we think about a lot of things on television and lucas did the same thing for film uh and one of the great things is the fact that the, the two of them work together on labyrinth so i'm able to hang in my office a big picture of the two of them together 
so I have both of my subjects in one photo, which a lot of biographers don't get. <laughs> well, that's pretty neat. Well, our guest today has been Brian J. Jones. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Jim Henson, the biography, and we thank him for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Brian. Hey, it was my pleasure. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that edition of TV you grew up with. And we're only just beginning. We have some great guests coming up. We have Eric Braden of The Young and the Restless. He's been on that program for over 40 years, still going strong. And he is the dean of soap opera actors these days. And we'll talk about his new book, Autobiography Bestseller. Also, uh, we haven't taped it yet, but we have on the schedule an interview with Mr. Ed Asner. Yes, Ed Asner, as in the Mary Tyler Moore show. And uh, I couldn't be more honored. That's so exciting. And then we're working on dates. We don't have the date pinned down yet with William Daniels, who was, of course, Kit on Knight Rider. He was also uh, Dr. Mark Craig. I believe that was the character name on St. Elsewhere, a legendary actor of stage and screen. Also, he was in The Graduate and many plays. And uh, wow, what a, what a legend. And then we have a great show coming up uh, with another author. Uh, actually, she was on before, Jennifer uh, Cation Armstrong, talking about Seinfeldia, uh, all things Seinfeld. So this show, I mean, I think we're bringing it with the quality. Now we ask you to bring it and spread the word because the only thing this show is missing are listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that many listeners yet. Uh, and we're trying to grow the audience. Uh, but I think we're bringing great interviews. We're bringing great guests. Uh, and uh, I would love to have more listeners and have the kind of audience I have for my other podcasts. Because I think this is every bit their equal. And the only way we can do that, we don't have the big marketing budgets. Uh, we're not a huge company. We're basically me and uh, I have some part-time team members that help me out, but that's it. So I need you. I need you to spread the word. And there are a few ways you can spread the word. Number one, subscribe wherever you listen to the show. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, you know, especially if you're on iTunes or the podcast app uh, for the iPhone or the iPad, that is a huge help. I really, really would appreciate it. And then also rate and review us. Tell your friends if you're on any online communities where they love TV, please tell them because we, we have to get the word out. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to do this, this uh, show uh, if we have seven people listening for the long term. Uh, but I believe we can build the audience. I believe we will build the audience. So please, please tell your friends, and we thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time on TV You Grew Up With. And as they say, stay tuned.